So this talk forms part of a series of talks um, that are happening, I think, over several weeks um, about the refuge tree. Um, have you, most of you, been here for the previous talks? Did you come for the first talk about the? No, some of you. Know. Okay. All right. I'll give you a quick, quick, brief introduction. This is a refuge tree. This is a um, painting of the FWBO refuge tree. It uh, originally comes from the refuge tree tradition, comes from a Tibetan tradition. It forms one of the foundation um, um, meditation practices where you have a um, figure like this, which is made up of a tree. You have a Buddha, the Buddha of the present day, Gautama Buddha, although he's two and a half thousand years ago. He's considered our present day Buddha. And then you have Buddhas of the past and um, future, either side of him. Um, you have on one side the Arahants, the um, monks and nuns of um, early Buddhism. And you have on the other side the Bodhisattvas. And above um, the Buddhas you have the teachers of the past. And then along the top here you have sort of archetypal Buddhas that represent different energies or different um, aspects of enlightenment and you have a very pure Buddha, Vajrasattva, at the top. Um, and, it's, and then there's some figures down here which are called um, um, Teacher of the Present. Now, I'm not completely sure how the Tibetan tree um, varies. It depends which tradition you're in. But if you're an Nyingma-pa Tibetan, you'd find Padmasambhava um, situated in the front, in the middle there instead of the Buddha. And you'd have other different. You'd have the same, probably the same sort of configuration groupings, um, um, but they would be different figures. There's one. It's quite because it's a, a four-dimensional um, um, model. It's a bit difficult to um, represent it two-dimensionally. But there's also a, f a fourth thing, which are a books text. So what you have to you have to imagine, you've got this tree. It's got a central sort of platform, if you like, or um, flower branch there, supporting the Buddhas. And then it's got four branches, one coming out to the front, one coming out to the left, one coming out to the right, one coming out to the back. And on each of these branches, you've got different groupings of beings. So you've got the Arhats on one side, the Bodhisattvas on the other side. In the front, you've got the, um, the teachers of the present. At the back, you've got all the texts. And above the, the Buddha you've got all the teachers, the main influential teachers of your tradition, um, and you've got the archetypal Buddhas at the top. And, and surrounding the tree, though it's not actually, you can't see it very easily here, but they're represented here, are all the gods making offerings to this. Okay, so that's a very quick <laughs> run-through of the refuge tree. Now, in the um, tradition of, um, the original tradition Tibetan foundation practices, what you would do is you would visualize this model, this tree, in your mind. Um, you probably see it, first of all, you see a blue sky, and then you see a um, rainbow-colored cloud, and out of that grows a tree, and then you see each of the groupings of um, the beings, and you usually name them, so you have to know all the names of all those beings on that tree. And um, so you set up, there's a sort of drama, it's called a visualization practice, so there's a sort of drama that you go through. You sort of gradually build up this in your mind. 
some people who can do it very, very visually, of course, they can see all these beings, and others of us can't. We just have to feel them as being there. And um, once you've got this all there and all the gods and things, and it's all there in your mind, what you do then is you throw yourself down on the floor, doing a full-length prostration, sort of sliding along the floor, putting your hands up, saluting the tree, and then coming up. And as you go down, you say, um, to all the best of refugees I go. And you go, throw yourself down, and you come up. Of course, if you're not so young and uh, active, you don't th- literally throw yourself down. But um, you know, when you're young, um, or you're a bit over-enthusiastic, you throw yourself down, and you get a belly ache after a while because it pulls a lot of muscles in your belly. And you do this, you don't, you don't do it once, right? You go up and down constantly. And you're supposed to do this practice until you've done it, um, uh, what is it, 100,000 times. Okay, and then you go on to the next practice. Okay, so it usually takes a few years. Um, uh, friends of mine who've done the 100,000, it probably takes, well, one friend of mine's done it, it probably took him 10 years to do. But uh, if you were in a three-month, three-year, three-month, three-day, three-week, three-day Retreat, which some Tibetans do, you could do all the practices in that time because you can do the prostration practice in the morning and you can do the other ones in the afternoon. So it's, you know, it's a very intense sort of practice. So we don't usually introduce beginners to this practice. It's, um, it's not only physically demanding, but it's mentally demanding because um, you've got to hold all this in your mind and do all these different things. Um, but the refuge tree um, represents something very, very important for us. It represents all the things that we really value. We may not be clear completely about what we value, but it's the representation, if you like, of all that is deepest within us. And because this is our own particular refuge tree, this, this one in this painting, and we have our own practice of the ref, um, going for refuge and prostration practice, which involves the visualization. We have all the figures that go that have been in some way or another influential into the forming of the um, Friends of the Western Buddhist Order and the Western Buddhist Order. And they represent everything we could think of that's really important to us on, on the deepest sort of spiritual levels. So when you are able to accept that, that there in front of me is all that is important you really start to feel that you could go for refuge to it. You could take your shelter, your refuge, in those things. And that's the object of the practice, is to keep alive for you all that you value. Keep alive, keep in front of you what it is you really care about, what it is that motivates you in life. So that's the sort of brief history of the refuge tree. What I'm going to do this evening is talk to you about one figure that's on that refuge tree. Not the Buddha, that was, um, I think that happened last week. Um, I'm going to talk to you about Sangharakshita. Um, Sangharakshita is the founder of the Western Buddhist Order and the Friends of the Western Buddhist Order. And he sits on the refuge tree. You won't be able to see him, but if you want to come look afterwards, he sits actually quite central down here. He's in a sort of yellow, he's got a, like a yellow um, blanket around him and uh, monk's robes and a sort of blue shirt and black hair and glasses and long hair. And he's, he's unusual because he's got long hair. 
Now this is one of the first things that uh, is, you're going to find. I, you're going to find I'm saying this again and again in the talk. It's unusual. Cassandra right? Akshita is unusual. He's here dressed as a monk and he's got long hair. Now monks don't have hair. So that's unusual. Okay? I won't tell you why he's got long hair. Maybe that will become... Well, actually, it might not come clearer in this talk, but uh, you'll have to ask me a question later on about that. So we have our own refuse tree. We have our own figures. And um, Sangharakshita, um, in a way, is one of the most important, one of the most influential figures for us in this, um, in this particular refuge tree. It is his refuge tree, actually. He's, he designed it. I mean, Arloka, one of the order members, painted it, but he painted it in conjunction with Sangrakshita, and Sangrakshita told him who to put there. So um, Sangrakshita, if you like, was the architect of the, this particular... Can you have architects of trees? Not really, buildings, but he's the god, if you like, that created the tree. Um, and Arloka brought it into life in that particular incarnation. So, on that particular grouping, just below the Buddhas, Sangharakshita is sitting there with his teachers, or with those people that he considers, I don't know if he technically calls them his teachers, I suppose in a way he does just for convenience, but when he speaks about them more personally, they don't seem to be teachers in quite the same way as one usually thinks of teachers, like you go to school and you have a teacher, or you go to college and you have a lecturer or a teacher, or you have a guru who's a teacher. He seems to have just met people and spent time with people, and they've imparted something to him. They've communicated something to him, and he's learned something. So I guess, in a way, they taught him something. But it wasn't like they set out to be his teacher. But he surrounded himself with, I think there are eight other figures there, and he makes the ninth, and uh, they are all very important figures. And I... I guess over the next few weeks you'll be introduced to some more of these figures too. But I'm here to tell you about Sangharakshita. Um, a number of order members were asked to give um, talks on different figures in the tree. I'm not completely sure why I was asked to talk about Sangharakshita, but I could guess. Um, it may be because I've known him for a long time. I've probably known him longer than anyone else here. Um, I would say... I've definitely known him longer than anyone else here. And uh, not only have I l known him longer, I've um, lived with him, I've worked with him, I've even looked after him when he's been ill. And um, I sort of know him a little bit personally, I guess, because of, of, of those opportunities I've had. So um, the way in which I want to talk about Sangrash is on a more personal level. I'd like to share with you my own experience of Sangharakshita and in doing so I hope you will catch a sort of glimpse of the founder of the Western Buddhist order. And it's important that you do catch this glimpse really because if you want to go on being members of the Sangha associated with the centre, it is always going to be influenced by Sangharakshita, whether directly or indirectly. And um, it's good to you know, have a relationship with the, this person um, who, in a way, is one could again see him as our teacher, because he has um, formed things in the way that, in a particular way, 
It's not a Tibetan center. It's not a Zen center. It's not a Theravadan center. It's a Western Buddhist order center. And you're friends of the Western Buddhist order. It's a particular, even that term, even that um, system he designed. It was his design having an order and having friends of the order. Um, having a Western Buddhist order that wasn't monastic was quite a revolution, actually, and uh, quite um, extremely different um, in the Buddhist world. So I'm going to tell you a little bit, first of all, about the history, my personal history with um, Sangharakshita. Well, the first thing I should tell you about Sangharakshita is that we don't call him Sangharakshita. We call him Banti. Uh, it's important that you know this because very often when you hear order members speak, they talk about Banti um, or Sangharakshita. Um, depends if they're, who they're talking to. But here in the Western Buddhist order centres, we always, usually always refer to um, Sangharakshita as Banti. It's a lot easier saying Banti than Sangharakshita. But Banti is just like a title. Uh, most monks um, who are teachers are referred to as Banti. But we have our own particular Banti. Um, I think some older members, when they first met Banti, thought he was called Bunty. Um, they thought it was an English term. You know, they hadn't worked out that Banti was a, uh, um, a sort of a, a title. They thought his name was Bunty. Hello, Bunty. How are you? Um, so I'm going to talk to you about Bunty and, um, um, and how I met him. So um, I want to do this because I've, I'm going to say this again and again that he is an extraordinary person in more ways than one. I mean, we, when we say extraordinary, we usually mean something... We, we probably understand what we mean together by the term extraordinary, you know, someone who is you know, out of the ordinary. But Sankarakshita is extraordinary in many, many different ways, not in just like being extraordinary in the usual way, but extraordinary in many different ways and he has many different dimensions to his being so it's not easy really to just tell you about him um, so I'm just hoping that you'll catch glimpses, facets of um, what, what, he is, what he is so I met uh, Sangharakshita Banti in 1972 at a beginner's meditation class, so I was taken there by my by a friend who later became my brother-in-law and he had already taken me to a yoga centre and talk, I started doing Hatha Yoga, and then he said, you need to start uh, meditating. And I've met this really good teacher. And, um, you know, so it's sort of a, you know, nice people, but he's such a good teacher. And uh, so he took me to this centre, and I'm really looking forward to meeting this, you know, really exciting teacher. And I came in, and, and he, um, and I was a very shy young man in my early 20s, and... Um, he um, sort of left me at the bookshop. You know, he went off and talked to some of the people he knew, and I'm standing there pretending, you know, as one does when you're a bit shy. You come in, you go down the bookshop, don't you? You look at books. You're not really sure if you're interested in them, but you look as though you are. And uh, anyway, this guy came up to me and started talking to me. And I said, hello, you know, do you, you come here to meditate? He said, yeah, I'm, I'm going to be meditating. And, and I said, oh, do you come here often? You know, sort of be, <laughs> wasn't trying to chat him up or anything, but... Uh, we, I just sort of got in a conversation and, uh, you know, he was just being very sort of ordinary, not saying anything. And then Loka Mitra came up and said, oh, hello, this, hello, this is Bunty. And I had no idea who Bunty was. I could have thought you said Bunty at the time. So I said, oh, hello, you know. And a little while later we went upstairs to the shrine room and there was this Bunty or Bunty 
um, no longer in his raincoat or his jacket. And uh, I mean, he did have long hair, and he did have rings on his fingers, and it was a bit greasy his hair and things. You know, it was it was London, it was North London, it was the um, early seventies. I mean, could you imagine what it's like? You know, you heard of the Beatles, you know, people like that, and Rolling Stones, and. Uh, the um, the swinging 60s well this was after the singing 60s they were still sort of swinging in London and um, it was pretty normal to meet people like him in places like that, you would expect it but I didn't realise that the guy I was talking to in the bookshop was actually the teacher and I thought oh I should have been a bit more respectful or something you know, but, but he just seemed um, very ordinary and uh, so I think this gives you a bit of a, a sort of a glimpse of him well Lokomitra who was a bit more um, he wasn't Lokomitra then, but he, he later became an order member called Lokomitra. He was um, much more outward-going an extrovert than I was, and he seemed to network very quickly, so he knew everyone. And uh, he uh, said to me, um, I was called Ray in those days, he said, Ray, do you, do you think you could um, drive Banty home? You know, because um, I happened to be one of the few people who had a job. Um, and I had a car, which was even more unusual. It was a it was a bit of a bunch of hippies, although um, someone called me a hippie in our chapter meeting earlier, and I just felt slightly insulted. I was never a hippie. Um, I was an engineer. And uh, so I used to drive Banty home um, on a Wednesday evening after the meditation class, and I used to chat to him, you know, 22-year-old saying to this 42-year-old, saying, oh, you had a nice day today, Banty, and uh, I had a much more of a Cockney accent in those days, and... Uh, and I think he used to tease me a little bit about it, you know, how, how I was just a bit of a man of the world, or pretending to be. And when I look back at it, and when I think of 22-year-olds now, and uh, you think, oh, I must have been a bit of a fool, really. But he just, uh, you know, he, he sort of treated me in due regard, and um, was very pleasant. And that's something that I realised about him right from the beginning. He was very friendly, and he was very encouraging. He seemed to really appreciate what I was doing for him, driving him home. And whenever I could, whenever I had the opportunity to take him somewhere to um, give him the use of my car and me as a chauffeur, then I would sort of volunteer my services. So I, I was fortunate to get to know him right from the beginning in a way that most people, um, even in those early days, didn't get to know him so well. Um, so I started forming a little bit of a personal relationship in this way and uh, he um, used to ask me questions like, oh, what are you reading anything? Do you read? I suppose he must have asked me that question first. And I did read, and I was a little bit embarrassed about the books I read. Um, I come from a very working-class background. Um, I failed um, tremendously at school. Um, I think I came away with one O-level, o as they were called then. I think they still have O-levels. And um, I got how I got that, I don't know. Uh, it was a sort of bit of a miracle, but... I had um, uh, a friend who had introduced me to some books, and I started had started reading, um, not just James Bond, but you know some sort of <laughs> some literature. Anyway, Banty, one of the great things that he encouraged me to do was to read literature, particularly English literature. And not only did he encourage me to do, it, he used to give me books to read. He said, "Oh, I think you might like this book," and so I'd go away and read it, and I liked it. And I'd come back and I'd talk to him about <coughs> it. And uh, he'd ask me questions, you know, very friendly, not like a, a sort of school teacher way. And we'd share little insights and uh, not a lot, but he would say, oh, if you like that, you might like this one. And so um, I started reading um, English classics. 
And um, my uh, <clears throat> became a bit of a joke with my um, my mother-in-law at the time because she was an English teacher, and she was Lokomitra's father and. Uh, the, the mother, sorry, not father, mother. Um, she was the mother of um, um, two other, well, three children. And I was the one least educated of the lot, but I seem to have read the most classics by within about ten years. And uh, I used to have these lovely discussions with her as well about, um, you know, Dickens and um, Ian Foster and various other books. In fact, so, sometimes I knew that she hadn't read them, so I used to feel quite good about myself given that I left school with nothing. Um, I did educate myself a bit later on. Um, but Sanger actually was always, Bantu was always very, very encouraging. Um, I got married very young, and um, by the time I, just about the time I got interested in, the, um, 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 in Buddhism, two things happened. One, when my mother died, and uh, secondly, I had a, a daughter um, I was married, and we had decided to have a family, and I had a daughter. And I moved from with my wife and daughter from London to Cambridge, and Sanger actually came and visited, visited us um, on a number of occasions, stayed with us in, uh, in Cambridge. So you can see the sort of relationship I was building up with him. And he was very, very encouraging. In fact, my wife became an order member, and... Um, she, um, uh, our daughter, when she was born, um, we asked uh, Bant if, if he'd like to name her, and uh, he gave her the name Shanti. Um, in fact, Shanti said to me recently, she's a school teacher now, um, she said, um, um, she was explaining to someone that her name was Shanti at work, and they said, well, your parents hippies. Because <laughs> my other daughter's called Sundari, and the Banti named her as well. And they, they haven't got any other names. They just you know, had to live with those, but they seem to be all right with them. Um, so he was always very encouraging us with the family. So some people um, who've been around the FWO for many years may have heard of things like single sex and um, single sex um, institutes, institutions like men's communities, women's communities, um, single-sex businesses and so on. And um, probably not nowadays, you, but you know, back in the 90s, certainly in the 80s, people often felt that there was a, a lot of pressure put on people to experiment and live in single-sex situations and that most of us were sort of forced apart from our partners and um, encouraged to go and live in <coughs> single-sex situations. Well, Sanger actually never forced me to leave my family um, for better or worse it was one of my own decisions and one of the decisions of my wife that we would um, live in a different way um, in fact what he seemed to do with me more than anything is to get me to understand that I had responsibilities and that I should you know, really take into account those responsibilities in my decisions I was, I was in my mid-twenties and I was beginning to feel, I wish I didn't have any responsibilities, but you know, it was good having someone around saying, well, you know, you're responsible for bringing two children into this world, and uh, hey, don't you have some responsibilities towards them? And uh, so um, he was always very interested in my family and how my daughters and, uh, and other members of my family were getting on. So I felt him very supportive to me, to my family, 
um, whilst at the same time he was strongly encouraging other people to experiment in different lifestyles. Um, again, this was in the 70s, where, people, where it wasn't unusual for people to think about, at least, living in communes, or communities, um, working in cooperatives, workers' cooperatives, um, and doing anything else that involved dropping out of normal society. And uh, a lot of us tried dropping out, and uh, I suppose we spend the rest of our lives wondering what we dropped out into and then trying to get back in again. And uh, some of us <coughs> realised it's too late and it's not worth bothering anymore trying to get back in because you're too old. But, uh, um, it, yeah, it was um, an interesting time. I, um, as I say, my wife and I decided to live in, um, well, I, I, to live in communities, which involved me living in community. It wasn't really um, possible for her to live in a community at first. Although uh, Banty did originally get us to move into the first family community. Not, not many people in FW know this, but I lived in the first um, family community with my children and with um, two or three other order members and their children. And it was in this great big rambling house. Um, have, have any of you read Gormagast? Um, if you've read Gormagast, you can imagine what this house was like. Because it was, um, well, I'll give you a description. It was a cold rectory in Norfolk. <coughs> it had geese wandering through it, um, dead sheep hanging in the barns, and it wouldn't be unusual to find an owl in the refrigerator. Don't ask me why there was an owl in the refrigerator, but. It was an unusual place, and it was cold, and there were three families living there. And um, I think that experiment proved to me that it was not a good idea to have family communities like that, certainly not in that sort of place. Maybe in separate flats living together might work, but to try and put in three families together and with children, you've got your different ideas of how to bring up children. And so the parents have all got to sort, do a lot of sorting out. Parents are all going through their own thing, and the children are running around making a noise. And um, so we bought a house and moved out and became a nuclear family again. <coughs> um, but we had, a set, we had a taste of living in a community, <coughs> and I suppose that taste stayed with us, and it wasn't long before I was able to go and live in a men's community whilst my wife and um, children lived in the city nearby Norwich. I lived at Patmaloka. And when I was living at Padmaloka, I was living um, with Sangrakshita because he was living there. I was working together with him some of the time. I was also working as an engineer in the university um, where I was um, earning enough money to support my family and very quickly became the chairman of the retreat centre at Sangrakshita's suggestion. Um, he, he was ill there for a while. I looked after him then. And um, I looked after him again. I lived with him on two occasions at Padmaloka in the men's community there. I lived again with him for a number of years in uh, a community in Birmingham um, called Marjimaloka. And um, I was a re he had a sort of serious illness a few years ago and spent quite a lot of time with him, um, being, just being with him. I can't really say I looked after him that well. I mean, it wasn't feeding him or doing anything like that, I was just spending time with him and talking to him, just being with him, which was very interesting. So what is Banti like? What is he like to be with? Well, Banti is, to me, a real giant. He's a real giant of a man. Um, I discovered him back in the 1970s, and um, 
I've ever since I met him, and right until this day, I always feel it's very, very important to take seriously what he says, to listen to what he says and to really think about it. Sometimes we're tempted just to think, well, that's not my experience. You know, someone says something. It's, it's quite easy to think, to, well, you need to, in a way, to judge it by your own experience of things. And you could easily dismiss other people by just thinking, well, that's not my experience. That's not how things are, so it's wrong. But uh, Sanger actually made me realise that my experience was very limited. I have a very, very limited experience in comparison to him. And um, he seemed to me to be this sort of real giant of a figure. (coughs) And whenever he wrote things or said things, then it was always, there was always something he was getting at, and I might not get it straight away. And it would need quite a bit of study, quite a bit of time to... um, really figure out what he was saying. Um, shortly after I started meditating, at beginner's meditation, I went started going to his lectures, and uh, he was giving some very obscure lectures by this time. He was giving a series of lectures called the um, Tantric series of um, lectures. <coughs> I had no idea what he was talking about, um, but I found them amazing. I, I went, I tried to go every week, um, I missed the first two or three, and I went to them, I was fascinated whilst, you know, sitting there, it was going right above my head. I didn't even have the vocabulary to understand what he was talking about. But he had this way of talking to the complete beginner whilst talking to people that had been to the whole series and previous series of lectures that he gave. <clears throat> and it made a very powerful impression on me. I felt he was communicating something very, very powerful. Whilst at the same time looking at him, he seemed pretty ordinary. Well, actually, he wasn't quite as ordinary in those days. He was a bit odd in those days because he would be standing there in his monk's robes with his rings on and his long hair and talking about the Dharma. <coughs> so that was odd. <coughs> but uh, I'm one of those people that loves oddness. So I, I was attracted to this. I mean, some people were really put off. They thought, you can't have a proper monk who's got long hair. That's just against all the rules. And so he's not a monk. But I, I used to love it because, you know, that was all part of the ethos in those days. Anything that was radical, different, um, out of the ordinary, you know, not conservative, um, and it, sort of tasting of anarchy, then uh, that was really fascinating. So he was like my hero, you know, this, this man that was breaking all the rules. Go for it, Banty, go for it. <clears throat> so um, there he was. He looked odd. But actually, when you got to know him, he's quite ordinary. You know, he's just sort of friendly. He's quite a tease, Banty. He, um, he doesn't do it so much now because, um, you know, we're all got a bit delicate. But in those days, we were all young, robust kids. And he used to tease us like anything. And he used to make jokes. And he got a fantastic sense of humour, incredible sense of irony. And his jokes now are very subtle. So you're not quite sure always when he's making a joke. <coughs> um, this is something most of you won't know, but he had this amazing ability to take off people, to imitate people. He, he stopped doing it after a while, but when I lived with him in the uh, late 70s, he, he went for a phase where he used to imitate order members. And uh, <coughs> I don't, I'm sure he must have imitated me when I wasn't there, but no one told me. But, uh, but he, would, he would just sort of like, you know, 
what's, well, I don't want to say it, but you know, what they, what it means is to te- is to imitate someone and sort of send them up a bit. And, uh, <coughs> we would be in absolute stitches. We'd be falling off our chairs laughing. You know, there'd be this group of 16 men sitting around the table, um, banty at one head of it, and we'd have these serious discussions. And then he'd just bit lightheartedly say, and, uh, well, of course, you know, and, he w- and it was obvious who he was imitating. And he would say it just like this person would. And, and he would sort of actually communicate something. It wasn't just that he was being nasty or anything, but he was actually communicating something, an insight he had into that particular person, insight into people. <clears throat> so he was great laugh to be around. Um, but when he focused on something, like when he was writing his books, he had this ability not to be there. You know, he was there physically, but he wasn't there. <clears throat> now, maybe this is common with authors. I don't know many. Um, but certainly when Vanti wrote, it's like you had lunch with him and you say something to him and he'd almost ignore you. It was as though he couldn't hear you. He would just be so focused on what... And he said that when he was writing, he was just completely focused on what he was doing and he didn't like to be disturbed. So you sometimes used to have lunches in this really awkward silence, you know, waiting for him to go. And then when he'd gone, the rest of the community would start laughing, making jokes and things. But he would have this ability to be very, very focused. And um, <clears throat> it could be quite uncomfortable as well at times. And it could be uncomfortable because it felt as though you were no longer important. You know, there you were trying to be there with your teacher, <clears throat> have some sort of relationship to, to him. But he would ignore you. In fact, he seemed to have this ability with anyone who was needy. Anyone who was needy seemed to be completely, you know, almost poignant, pointedly ignored. And uh, I think it's a bit cruel sometimes because I, you know, whenever I see anyone's a bit needy, sort of needs a bit of support. I mean, it's a bit of a derogatory term saying people are needy, but sometimes people are needy, aren't they? They just want something from you. And uh, he wasn't prepared to give it to them. He, he didn't seem to just function in a sort of social way. Um, whilst at the same time, he was incredibly kind and thoughtful and careful about people. And even people that wanted something or needed something from him, if he wasn't able to give it to them, he would often talk to someone else and get them to go and talk to that person or be with that person. And uh, he was very aware of them. He used to sit at dinner table. This is what it was like. You would sit there, right, and you would... You would sit there eating your dinner, and we usually ate in silence around him. And you'd sit there eating your food, and you'd look up, look around, and you'd notice that Banty was looking at everyone. And he wasn't like staring, but he was just eating his food, and he was taking everything in. And as you got to know him, you realised he was just taking everyone in. And you weren't being ignored at all. You were being completely taken in by someone. And that was uncomfortable too. You... You, I know a lot of people used to think that he read their thoughts. <coughs> I mean, I don't think you need to be able to read people's thoughts to know what they're thinking, if you see what I mean. I mean, their body gestures, their facial expressions often give away what it is that people are you know, doing. Um, <coughs> but he, he was really taking you in, and that could be quite um, unpleasant. Whenever you said anything, um, <coughs> whenever you made a joke, I, I read in a novel... Um, a novel I'm reading at the moment um, something which I thought I could say to Banty you know, I think I might say this to him next time I see him um, you could say this to him you say uh, 
I guess you probably would like on your gravestone written something like, um, he suffered fools cheerfully. And he'd probably chuckle at that. But then immediately he would come up with a better one. (laughs) And uh, this was sort of something you always, you could never sort of come up with something and be pleased with it because he would, as quick as anything, come up with a better suggestion, more funny, more (laughs) meaningful. And... um, and it was like that, trying to argue with him, you know, if you have a discussion about something. And he was quietly provocative, quietly provocative. You know, he would say something, and you, and you, you could watch people, particularly people who didn't know him, they would sort of, he would say something, just quite innocently. And it was like a little bit of bait, and they'd go for it. And then he would just sort of play with them and um, say, well, you know, if you think that, well, how does this happen? And that happened. And, uh, and sometimes you have these really serious, interesting discussions. And you, you thought you, you, know, you were really right about something. But his perspective seemed to just broaden out suddenly. And you realised you were looking at things in such a narrow way. And there was another way to look at it. And uh, so it was almost as though you felt you could never win an argument with him. Not that we were competitive or anything like that. But, um, <clears throat> well, we were. We were young men, and we wanted to win arguments. But it was like a, um, a sort of uh, very friendly father figure, you know, who was just sort of playing with the boys. And, um, and sometimes he used to joke about the girls. You know, he used to sort of make little jokes about, you know, what women were like and things. And apparently, when he met up with women, he used to joke about the men. And, you know, so, well, you know what men are like, you know. And uh, so he used to sort of be able to sort of play with people and joke and, uh, um, and have a very, you know, warm sense of humour. Unfortunately, what used to happen is that when he made jokes with one group of people, they'd often go and relate them secondhand to the other group of people. And, of course, that didn't work, um, you know, because you know what Banty said about women, and then you get a sort of a little thing, or you know what Banty said about men, and then, you know, you start feeling bad about yourself because Banty had said it. But he said it very contextually. He was very playful. And uh, he seemed to sort of really take people along with him. It was just his disciples that were often a bit ham-fisted, um, so to speak. He had an encyclopedic, or still has, an encyclopedic memory. Um, he read incredibly widely. I mean, he's, he's a sort of... Um, one of his people just digest books he's always reading um he's always read right ever since he learned to read um <clears throat> he's um not only read deeply he's thought deeply he saw things um that perhaps other people just didn't seem to see and pointed them out he's a bit like a newton saying do you notice that apples fall to the ground when they fall off of trees and you go yeah and but like no one had ever said that before, and um, suddenly it's profound. So Banty was a bit like this. He would point things out that, in some ways, were so sort of obvious. But when you actually thought about them, they weren't as obvious as you thought. Well, you never thought about them. You just thought, well, that's what happens. But when you started thinking through, well, why do apples fall to the ground? And you start thinking, oh, that's interesting. Apples fall to the ground. There must be some sort of Force pulling them down, and then in the end, you have a whole theory of gravity, and um, and that you know revolutionised science. So um, Sanger actually is a bit like this. He, he pointed out a lot of things. His interests were in very very wide. He used to read not only the English classics. He loved poetry. He loved history. He loved visiting places. Um, 
He read all the philosophers, as far as I know, the ancient and more modern. I'm not sure if he read the postmodernists. I don't think he was that interested. He wanted to write a philosophical work himself, um, particularly about Neoplatonists and Buddhism. Um, but he said he's not, he's, um, well, he won't be able to do that in this lifetime. Um, he's read all the, um, his, his knowledge of the Dharma is um, enormous um, and quite incredible. And he's not only read the suttas and sutras, the commentaries, the rules, the vinaya, um, but he's read many other religious texts. And he's always encouraged other people to read widely. Um, I remember once him telling us all at a dinner table, he said, I think more people should read the Bible. And he said, what? And, you know, we're Buddhists. And he said, no, they should read the Bible. And you said, well, why, why should people read the Bible? And he said, well, first of all, you can't understand English literature if you don't read the Bible, because there's so many references to figures in the Bible in English literature, in, in, in classical English literature. You, won't, you don't know what, what's, um, what people are talking about. And <clears throat> not only that, it's a thoroughly good yarn. It's a really good, particularly the Old Testament. You know, it's a really good story. And um, he was, you know, he'd say things like that as an example. Um, so I was thinking when I wrote this talk, I try and be a bit more provocative like Banty um, was, but I'm not sure I'm going to succeed because I seem to have got a bit old and stayed. But, uh, you know, that might have been a mildly provocative um, comment. But uh, he would say things that were very provocative and you didn't realise it at the time that they were so provocative but when you went away and thought about it you think oh that's interesting <clears throat> so he would often say um, come out with some very strange um, ideas I mean in the uh, was it the 80s everyone was anti Mrs Thatcher weren't they anyone here was a pro Mrs Thatcher well Banty was pro Thatcher you know he thought that she was the only man you know, um, strong enough to do what the country needed. I mean, sorry, woman, um, to do what the country needed. And uh, he pointed out all the things that needed to be done. And he said, people will not like them, but they need to be done. And uh, you'd sort of, you'd feel embarrassed almost. You wouldn't like to sort of say, well, you're not banty, you said about Thatcher, didn't you? Um, and, and, you know, everyone assumed that he was going to be running her down. And he was saying, no, it's sort of, you know, it's not that he, he thought... Um, she was a great person, but he admired what she was doing. He, he saw a particular, he, he was able to see the good that people were doing um, in certain situations. And he, he saw it in a bigger, broader perspective than just thinking about the miners or the education or the classrooms or whatever. He saw it on a much, much broader scale. His views on politics and um, personal relationships and many other things were quite unusual and quite um, out of keeping with the times. In fact, he wasn't very in favour of fashions, whether they were views or even clothing. <coughs> he wasn't afraid to speak out. In fact, quite often he spoke out, particularly when he felt people were misrepresenting the Dharma. And if you read some of his works, like Protestant Buddhism, you will find him being, well, some people find him almost unpleasantly attacking of another author. But um, he, he felt fully justified in doing this. He felt that the Dharma was so precious, it needed to be protected, and it was not fashionable. Uh, it hasn't be, it's certainly not fashionable these days, unless you 
Uh, it seems to be on the news and the media to be fashionable to attack people um, if you're an interviewer. But um, he would he would speak out and he was quite happy to enter into dialogue with people and disagree. And he was very pleasant to them. But uh, he spoke his mind. And he didn't really care too much what people thought of him because he thought it was more important to speak his mind than to please people. And again, I think this is what makes him stand out as an extraordinary person. He was not trying to please the crowd. He was not trying to please members of society. He wasn't trying to people put people off, but he wasn't trying to please. If putting people off was the price you paid, I think he would count that as the cost. But he was prepared to say what he really thought. And one, I certainly admired him for doing that. I didn't find it easy always listening to him but, um, or reading some of the things he wrote. But um, behind it all, when you get to know the man, you realise there's a lot of love, a lot of care and consideration. And I guess he just treated other people as though they were robust enough to take it. And I think, in a way, that was one of his great qualities and perhaps sometimes one of his failings. I think he, saw how he thought people were more together than they actually were. Certainly, that's how he treated us, as though we were sort of like really together and capable of great things. But actually, you know, we were all sort of like nervous wrecks trying to do the best we could. And I don't think he related us to us as nervous wrecks. He related us, related to us as um, healthy human beings who perhaps just needed to become a little bit more happy, healthy and human to practice the Dharma more intensely. It's difficult to explain, really, what it was like being around him. It would both be that you could feel incredibly uncomfortable, but uncomfortable in different ways. Um, one of the things you could feel uncomfortable about, certainly if you were like me, coming from a, a background lacking in cultural education, is that you felt... Um, um, you, you know, human beings, can't, we can't help comparing ourselves to others. It seems to be part of what we do as human beings. In order to know ourselves, we have to compare ourselves to people. And uh, our response when we compare ourselves to other people can be that we either feel bad about ourselves because we're not as good as them, or we can become inspired because we'd like to become like them. And uh, I think if you felt a bit down, a bit weak, a bit sort of not on top of the world, being around Sangha actually was a bit uncomfortable because you, could, you were comparing yourself to this guy who just seemed so extraordinary and uh, it, it could make one feel very uncomfortable. Um, although Sangha actually was incredibly well read and thought an awful lot, he never thought of himself as an intellectual. Um, I never quite got out from him what, how he defined an intellectual, but he said, oh, I'm not an intellectual. And, um, you know, in my cat category of what an intellectual was, he certainly was an intellectual. But he never saw himself as an intellectual. He wasn't an academic, and he hardly went to school, let alone university. But he had this incredible mind um, that allowed him to absorb information, to synthesize it, and to penetrate into deeper and deeper truths. And he was incredibly creative. And one of the most creative things that he came up with in his early teachings was a model for communicating the Dharma to us, <coughs> for Westerners. A, a simple model 
that would explain what the Buddha was trying to get at and how to do it, you know, what the Buddha's idea was and how to practice what the Buddha taught. And this was the model that he called the... Well, he used the model, a scientific model, or a quasi-scientific model of the evolution theory. You know, evolution has it that... Um, <clears throat> that um, cells and uh, on a biological level things evolve into more and more from simple simple forms of life into more and more complex forms of life and he saw that um, well, his model was that uh, life has evolved up to the level of man you know, mankind and that um, this is what he called the higher evolution of man it was the evolution of human beings to sort of what we are now, well, at least when we're at our best. But he saw that the, the uh, evolutionary process um, was uh, that um, humanity was a sort of a um, transitional phase in an evolutionary process. He saw that individuals could go on and evolve further. In fact, they could, we all could evolve, even within a lifetime, further than um, was possible in the past. It needed the form of hum the human being in order to have human consciousness and it was the human consciousness that could evolve and he called this the higher evolution of consciousness and he said what the Buddha taught was um, an evolution of consciousness that if we make the right sort of effort our um, <clears throat> consciousness could evolve and the Buddha gave this uh, model of a lotus pond and he said that he saw human beings as lotuses and uh, lo these lotuses were all in different stages of development. They weren't all growing up together. They weren't ev all evolving as a group. They were all in the mud as a group, in their roots, but each one was growing at its own rate, depending on the conditions that it had. Sangharakshita said that from now on, our evolution is dependent upon us making a conscious effort, a conscious effort where we decide that we want to evolve. Um, which doesn't mean to say like we just want to get out of being human and become something spiritual, but we evolve. And it's quite important that one understands, if one wants to understand his teaching, what he means by evolve. It doesn't mean just change. It doesn't mean from just being this to that. It means changing what you have and taking it with you to become something greater. I understand even in the physical body we have things left over from fish, you know, gills or something, which we don't have to use. We don't use, but they're still there. We still sort of take them with us. And the evolution of our consciousness will involve us taking everything we have now, all our faults, all our difficulties, all the things we would like to get rid of, is not getting rid of them, but taking them with us and evolving to a higher level. And this is quite revolutionary, and I think even today we don't get it. I think many of us tend to think of the spiritual life as a way out. It's like we're in prison, we're in this prison of being, which is confusing. We don't know where we are, it's dark. We don't know what we think half the time. You know, we're confused, we don't know what we feel. We don't know whether we're in our head, we're in our bodies, we don't know where we are, we don't know how to have friends, we don't know how to talk to people. We have to pay people to get them to listen to us. And, um, you know, we, we just don't know how to do it. And... Um, what Sangharakshita is pointing out is that, well, we can get organised. We can really, first of all, accept what we are now. And first of all, we have to get to like it. 
It's not that we have to sort of accept it like, um, oh, that's good, you know, that I'm a jerk. You know, I can just go on being a jerk all the time. You just think, well, okay, I'm a bit of a jerk now, but I can become a more enlightened person um, without sort of changing my character necessarily. You know, maybe I talk a lot. Well, I'll always talk a lot, but I could be a bit more mindful of the effects of my talking a lot on other people, for instance, and that might influence how I talk, you know, and I, I like talking. So it's very important when one understands his model of this higher evolution is that you, first of all, allow yourself to feel really rotten about yourself. That's what I had to do. You know, feel really bad, sort of like you're just a worm. You're not even a worm, really, in the spiritual stakes. You're just sort of like pre-worm. And um, it's, you know, you're a victim um, of society, of everything, you know, and that's awful. But you can evolve. You can become a more enlightened victim. And uh, you could even stop being a victim because that's just a sort of form of consciousness. And um, you can, but it's not as though you try to get rid of, trying to cut off something of your being, but you actually try to take it all with you. And this is actually quite a radical um, face to, to um, uh, way of, of going about things. Of course, it does involve things like hierarchies. Um, Sanger actually used the term spiritual hierarchy, which became very, very unfashionable. In fact, in this um, book I was reading recently by a psychologist, he he had to apologise for the use of the word hierarchy because he said, you know, not many people like hierarchies. So he gave two diagrams, one which was sort of up and down hierarchical and the other which was on a flat area like a mandala, you know, like a pie chart, which showed people sort of closer or further away from the centre, which apparently isn't hierarchical. Um, but um, so one of the things you have to understand about higher evolution is that you are in a hierarchical business really so some people are going to be more developed than you and others are going to be um, less developed so hey where did equality go um, where where did um, democracy go you know we're, we're all equal aren't we no we're not some of us are more developed than others and uh, does that mean I'm more developed than you or are you more developed than me and this can get very uncomfortable you know when you start thinking now I wonder which person in this room is more developed than me I mean you probably could pretty much guarantee we're more or less on the same level. You know, we're on a pretty low level. Um, <clears throat> but we could go much, much further if we make a conscious effort. And this is what's really uncomfortable about Buddhism, and it's uncomfortable about Sangrakshita. It's because, hey, you've got to do it. There isn't a God who's going to do it for you. It's no good praying to the Buddha. I mean, there are pure land forms of Buddhism where you sort of pray to the Buddha to help you. But it's not like a, um, a prayer to a Christian God, if you see Christianity in that way, of um, wanting someone to do something for you. It's where you take complete responsibility for yourself. You realise that any um, muck-ups that you make, any um, difficulties you made for other people, anything that you've done wrong, you're going to suffer for. Tough, that's how it is. And it's no good thinking you're a victim because it was you that did it. You take responsibility for that. You're going to suffer. And the best thing you can do is get yourself in the best possible mental state to deal with that suffering. Not that all suffering is a call, comes from um, your previous actions, but um, according to Buddhism, hey, you've chosen to be born as a human being. Human beings get damaged. You get pain in your body, and it's your fault. It's not your parents. You know, it's, um, they might have done other things to muck you up, but you, um, you could even say you chose them. 
In fact, Sangra actually says you probably did choose them. And um, not only that, you're probably going to choose them again. Because where do you go? You always go to what's familiar. And you go to what's familiar, not necessarily what's pleasant, f- pleasantly familiar. You know, the things that occupy your mind most are often the things you don't like. So when your mind is completely occupied about things you don't like, particularly people you don't like, you're probably going to end up being around those people for a long time. It's quite convenient not to believe in rebirth. Um, because, yes, there'll be those people there again. You have to deal with them. You thought they'd gone. Anyway, uh, the main thing I really wanted to tell you this evening about Sangrakshita is that in this path of the evolution, he talks about the true individual, that this evolutionary process leads you up to becoming what he calls a true individual. So in becoming a true individual, you have to become more and more of an individual. So what does it mean to be an individual? Well, an individual is someone who is prepared to stand alone, who is prepared to stand outside the group, not to um, necessarily um, always be outside of the group, but is prepared to go against the group if necessary. An individual is someone who is prepared to say what they think, even though they know that no one else is going to like what they're going to say, if it's important to say it. I mean, if no one's going to listen to you, it might be just a waste of time speaking. But um, an individual is someone in, in whom um, they're, who is prepared to break free of the group. So what is the group? The group are all those people who are um, forming... Um, an association or a collection who are not individuals. Sanger actually calls them statistical individuals. And this is where it gets slightly uncomfortable, isn't it? You know, because um, now suddenly Buddhism starts seeming a little bit elitist because you've got people that are stopping being statistical individuals like the majority of society and emerging out of this group this mass of statistical individuals and claiming to be individuals. Of course, Buddhists don't claim anything and we're not interested in claiming anything, but we are interested in evolving. So you evolve out of this mass of sort of, I was going to say sub-individuals, or I think this word statistical individual is probably a very good term, these units, and all these units who don't really have very much um, individual consciousness usually get together and form a collective consciousness. And they're very, very protective of their collective consciousness. So we're all in groups. We all will recognise being in groups, if we think about it. We're all in family groups. We have, if any of us belong to some sort of minority group, we'll be very you know, involved in that group. And we'll have our own particular sort of groups that we are um, uh, attached to. And if the group is so strong and um, is more important than us, it will be very difficult to evolve this level of consciousness to become an individual. You have to be prepared to leave groups. In fact, you have to be prepared to leave all groups if necessary. You might go on being in the group. You don't have to ignore your families and so on but you have to be aware that your family is, is probably trying to get you to be a statistical individual, in other words, just a family member, um, rather than a special family member. I mean, you're all special. Um, but again, that is a way of levelling everything, because if we're all special, no one's special. And um, so being a true individual is, is about 
basically being aware of the effects of groups and not being frightened of groups and being prepared to go against the group. Sanger actually, in some of his lectures, gives some very clear um, instructions of how to experience and to spot group behaviour and what to do, what you need to do in order to work against it. I haven't got time to, to go into this. He maps out all the stages and, um, and all that will be required of us. And you begin to realise how difficult it could be to be an individual. In fact, how lonely it could be to be an individual. If you start leaving groups, well, who are your friends? Where do you go? Who do you communicate with? Well, this is why, for Buddhists, the Sangha is so important. The Sangha isn't necessarily a group, although sometimes it can behave as such, and it can easily fall into group behaviour, but it is a collection, an association of people who are trying to develop their individuality. And so the Sangha should ideally be encouraging people to constantly leave it, if you like, constantly leave any tendency, at least, of it becoming a group, of encouraging people to think for themselves to behave, to follow their own um, beliefs, their own values, and um, not to be a group member. If you want to um, get a, a very short um, pricey of um, some of Sangharakshita's ideas, particularly about the individual and the group, one of his lectures, which you can download on the web, or I think they probably find it on a disc now, so you can borrow, is called Evolution or Extinction, a, modest, a modern Buddhist view of current world problems. Well, those problems were the problems of the Cold War um, and the sort of 1960s. But you probably find equivalents, if you think about it, to today's problems, and you'll get a very clear idea. There's also a book by Sabuti called Sangharakshita, A New Voice in the Buddhist Tradition, which explains much of Sangharakshita's thinking. So to sum up Bhante... He's a very, very friendly and caring man, but it can be very uncomfortable being around him. He's less so these days. He seems to be much more comfortable to be around, or at least he was a couple of years ago. Apparently, he's become a little bit more forthright in what he says. I think he may have been a bit tired um, a few years ago. He was ill, and uh, he'd say a few things, and he'd just sort of mildly disagree or not. But uh, nowadays, I think he's, um, he's sort of, he's 83. Was it 83, 82, 83? And he's sort of up again. He's speaking out. And um, it has this sort of strange experience. You know, of course, um, he's become very, very skillful at speaking out. And people don't actually always know that he's speaking out. And they don't actually know he's being provocative until they go away and really discuss it with other people. Uh, for instance, he recently said some years ago that an order member who doesn't belong to a chapter of order members is only half an order member. Okay? So a chapter of order members, order members, they collect together in little chapters, you know, five, six, seven, ten people. And if you don't belong to one of these, you're not really an order member. So there are quite a lot of order members that are not in chapters. So how did they feel? Well, they said, well, Banty didn't mean it. Yeah, it's not true. I don't think he even said it. So you can point out where he said it. And then, because uh, he said it, he said, yeah, but he said it a long time ago. He wouldn't say that now. And uh, I think only the um, 
last weekend, someone told me, they met Banty, and he's he saying, well, what was he talking about? He's saying, well, he was talking about how order members, if they're not in a chapter of order members, are only half an order member. And um, this makes order members feel really uncomfortable. But um, I think this is part of being an individual, is to feel uncomfortable. It's good for us. It's good for us to have that sense of, well, I'm not all right. You know, I'm not perfect. I'm not a Buddha. Of course I know I'm not a Buddha. But I'm doing all right. I'm making an effort. Well, are you? Are you making as much effort as you could be? This is what's supposed to happen in a workshop of order members, is where someone says something and you say, oh, come off it. You know, how can you say that? And you, in a very friendly, kind way, you, uh, you, you challenge people. I did it actually earlier. I quite surprised myself, actually, because I'm not very challenging these days. But I challenged an order member. Someone apparently wanted to know where all the money goes to in the centre. You know, they, they donate money. And um, this order member saying, well, I, I'd quite like to know where the money goes. And I said, what, you mean you couldn't explain where the money goes? I mean... I mean, it's obvious, isn't it? I mean, this is building for five floors. It's got people running it. It's a big building right in the centre of Manchester. It's got rents, insurance, heating, lighting, gas, electricity. And you couldn't explain where the money was going. What's wrong with you? And he sort of felt, oh, what do you mean? And I said, God, I mean, no wonder the guy's confused if you can't tell him. And um, so he came up and thanked me afterwards. I thought I'd, you know, step the mark and got a little bit you know, emotional. He said, I'm glad you said that. It's really nice having someone being really challenging for a change. And um, so that's what banter used to be like. Um, very quick-witted, very fast. He would always cap you. You know, if you had a point to make, he would always make one better. Vast knowledge. He was more compassionate than anyone I've ever met. Um, he had very close, caring friends. Sometimes you could feel that you weren't one of his best friends because he seemed to not notice you quite so much but he had some very deep friendships and really cared about people. And when you were with him and when you communicated with him and when you were engaged with him, you really felt he was aware of you and very, very supportive and encouraging. He made you feel very human with all your faults and failings, but with all your possibilities and potentials. Banti, for me, is something of an enigma. Sorry this is going on a little bit long, but I told you I talk a lot. Um, He's so ordinary. Banty. Or Bunty. Doesn't he look ordinary? Is that who I've been talking about? That's Banty. He wanders around in pericarpet slippers wandering around. He's quite, he's quite old and frail now. But when you sit in a room with him on his own, suddenly there's a stillness. Suddenly the atmosphere seems to change. It's not easy sitting still and quiet with someone, is it? You know, when you don't know them. And although I know Banty very well, well, relatively well, well, actually, if he's an enigma, you can't really know him well. But I'm used to being with him, at least. And um, when you sit with him, you still feel slightly uncomfortable, like you, you feel like you ought to be saying something, you know. You're right? <coughs> Have conversation. But uh, he's quite happy just to sit still and quietly. And if you allow yourself to sit still and quietly, not reading, not doing anything, but just experiencing the atmosphere yourself, it's very strange. 
he seems to have a way of making the atmosphere change and become calm um, with his own being. If he starts talking about things, if he gets interested in a particular subject, he's very engaging. His views, his take on things are very interesting, and particularly if you draw him out and don't just disagree. But if you ask him things like, well, why do you think that? And you keep drawing him out, you actually begin to realise there's some really deep um, depth he's coming from with a particular thought. He's always been very different. He's always been slightly awkward. Um, he's always had his own little personal um, areas. Like, for instance, he always had a way that you had to make the tea. You always had to put the milk in first. So you couldn't use tea bags. So you had to put the milk in first and you had to make the tea in a special way. And he didn't like it if you didn't make it this way. And he said, this is the right way to make tea. Right. And you think, well, I don't agree. And you couldn't argue with him, right? This was the right way to make tea. He had his own very personal taste in the arts, which has caused quite a lot of arguments in the order, you know, that Banti happened to like a particular art. I think he finds the Pre-Raphaelites interesting. And most people, some artists say Pre-Raphaelites, they're not even artists, you know. And uh, he said, oh, no, no, I think they, you know, they, they really were onto something. Uh, I wouldn't call them great artists, but they were really into something. I really like their being. He would have his own sort of particular taste in colours and decor, which really wasn't everyone's cup of tea. Um, he even taught me how to make a doll. You have to put lots of salt in it. This is what he told me. You know, doll needs lots of salt to make it taste proper. Um, some people think you shouldn't use salt. But he had very strong views about <laughs> some of the most simple things in life. But if you were around him, whether you were on your own with him, whether you were sitting in a large group just being quiet with him, meditating with him, you began to get this feeling that there was something running very, very deep within him, as though there was a deep river that he was somehow in touch with. And as I say, he could make a room feel very calm, very concentrated, and so on. When I first met Banti, it was very difficult to be a Buddhist. It was very difficult to be a Buddhist in the world. It was very difficult to be a vegetarian. This was back in the 70s. If you said to people you were a vegetarian, they looked at you sort of strange, like, was that some sort of religion? Um, oh, you're a hippie. That's all right, sort of. Um, but he, um, it was very, very difficult to be a Buddhist. And... Um, for many of the years when I became an order member, I became an order member about two years after I met Banti, um, it, um, it was always difficult being a Buddhist. But today, it's easy to be a Buddhist, isn't it? In fact, it's almost de rigueur in some cycles to be a Buddhist, or at least to be interested in Buddhism. You know, the national health now suddenly discovered mindfulness. Thanks to Breathworks, we're you know, cashing in on it as best we can. Um, but um, mindfulness is, you know, one of the big things in psychology, in um, the national health. And it's quite easy to be a Buddhist. You know, if people say to you, um, well, it's not com always completely easy. So people say to you, what do you do? You say you're a Buddhist. Um, they often don't know what to say next. That's what I discovered. It's not because they don't, you know, worried or think. It's just they don't know what questions to ask. They don't even know what a Buddhist is. So they... 
you know, not sensible enough often to say, well, what do Buddhists do? Um, and then you'd, you'd be in, you know, a bit stuffed then because you've got to explain what Buddhists do. But um, today it is quite easy to be a Buddhist. But I would say it's more difficult to practice Buddhism. I think in some ways it was easier to practice Buddhism when it was difficult to be a Buddhist. If you see what I mean. Nowadays it's easy to be a Buddhist. You can be part of the group now. You can just be part of the group, the Buddhists. You know, I go to the Buddhist centre, I'm part of the group. I'm not suggesting any of you group members, of course, but one could be if one wanted to be. One could be, you know, see oneself as the Buddhist and be you know, comfortable with that. And people, you know, are quite interested in you if you're a Buddhist nowadays. If you go to a dinner party and you say, you're a Buddhist and I, you meditate and you practice mindfulness, of course you can't drink any wine then. You have to be really <laughs> um, practice what you preach. But uh, it's all right. People sort of, you know, don't think you're too odd. But because of that, I think in some ways it's more difficult to practice. I think it's more difficult to practice because it's, you, we all want to be parts of groups. And we feel uncomfortable going outside of the group. If you're part of a group that's not accepted by society, it's much more difficult. And it's more challenging. And so you have to make more of an effort. And the higher evolution is really all about making an effort. It's really about going beyond yourself. Taking yourself with you, but going beyond where you are. The group won't encourage you to change. The group, if anything, it's not in the group's interest to get you to change. They want you to just stay who you are. And I think this is probably, it's been suggested, this is what Sangrakshita is going to be remembered for. He's going to be remembered for his teaching on the individual and the group. Many people have started Buddhist, well, they've been teaching Buddhism in the West. <clears throat> Many people have written books on Buddhism uh, many people have different, explained different views on Buddhism. Sangrakshita has got his own particular interpretations of Buddhism, which he may be well known for in the future. But he's had this particular teaching of the higher evolution of the individual. And it may be that is what he will be um, known for in the future. So when you look at the refuge tree, I hope you don't just see Sangrakshita there as a sort of icon. In fact, I hope you don't see any of the figures there as a sort of icon. Don't just see him simply as the founder. Oh, yeah, there's Sangrakshita over there. Good. He doesn't look all that interesting. So let's get on with someone who's more interesting. Sangrakshita is extremely interesting. He's extremely challenging. And I would just like to encourage you, if you want to become true individuals, is that you really get to know him. You can get to know him by reading his books by listening to his lectures and uh, by reading his poetry. He says, if you really want to get to know him, read his poetry. Now, you might not like his poetry, but that's no reason not to read it. <coughs> that's just because you don't like it. But if you want to get to know someone and you have to do something, you just do it because that's what you want to do. So if you want to become a true individual, I would say that Sangrakshita is an is a incredibly good example. He's a Westerner. He was born in Tooting in London. He um, speaks English, drinks tea, um, has a, his own particular way of making tea, and uh, in some ways he's very, very ordinary. But he's also very extraordinary. So I hope that um, I've given you a few glimpses of Sangharakshita this evening. And I hope you just don't dismiss him because you don't like things he said or things, you know, in the way he's put things. I think you'll just give him the benefit of the doubt occasionally and just try to understand where he's coming from and see if you can reach down 
and feed from that same deep source. So that's all I've got to say this evening. You'll be pleased to hear. And um, I'm going to shut up now. And uh, thank you very much for listening. And if you want to ask me any questions, you can. Then you can go and have a cup of tea. So don't ask me too many questions. Otherwise you might get another lecture. But I'll stop there. And if there's anything you want to ask me about, please feel free to do so. Yeah, because if we go downstairs and come back, it'll be late. So. Does the evolution uh, well, there's a, there's a prerequisite? If anyone wants to go, by the way, just go. To go um, well, technically, Buddhists don't really believe in reincarnation. They just re- believe in the um, continuation of consciousness. But consciousness is an ever-changing thing. So it's not like there's a soul that reincarnates, a fixed thing, but there's just this constant flow process that we call consciousness. And um, it finds itself, if you like, it condenses into the human body, and that, your consciousness you know, will probably continue after your body is no longer around. Your identity, your ego sense is no longer around, but your consciousness, in some sort of strange way, will continue. Yeah. And that in some cases the evolution is all built within life. Yeah, the, well, in Buddhism, I, I think before Sangha actually no one ever talked about evolution. So it was something that he sort of was new to Buddhism when he started talking about it. To the scientific view. Yeah. Um, well, he pegged it to the lower evolution of, you know, biological evolution of, of life. Interestingly enough, just to be a little bit provocative, it's the strongest that survive. It's the strongest that evolves in life in the Darwinian theory. So it does actually take strong people to practice the higher evolution. Anyway, you're all strong. We're all strong. Go for it. I can't really say it. (laughs) I think she might be dead now, but... uh, there was a particular order member who he just was, he was so, I mean, she was such an extraordinary character. She was so eccentric for a start. And it was, it's probably not that difficult to imitate her, but he was just so good at doing it. And, uh, now, many times, actually many times he's, he uh, made, um, made us laugh. But I think he was a bit more risque when he was younger. So he would risk, you know, making us laugh at the expense of things getting out. But I think he, he, he discovered that people would very often quote him in a very wrong, in a very, um, in the wrong context of where it was appropriate. And it caused quite a lot of pain for people, actually. You know, if, if someone makes a joke about your particular group or something like that, and you go and report it to another group, then you can make people feel very uncomfortable. This expert said it. So it was all, always very contextual. And he's, not, he, he's very careful nowadays. He might make little jokes with me about things, which he might not make with you. <coughs> Well, there is a story to that. I, he never gave me a glass of wine. Um, this was before my time. In fact, I asked him once if... Uh, <coughs> I mean, I... <coughs> To be, um, I was—I wasn't really wayward engineer. 
you know, I was a little bit of a hippie in some ways. I, mean, I used to smoke weeds and things like that and drink alcohol when I was young and uh, occasionally probably even do today have a glass of wine, don't smoke any illegal substances. But I remember, you know, sitting in one room with a friend having a joint and Banty was in the other room and it seemed quite normal to that and he would just come through and go, oh, having a good time, you know. <laughs> <laughs> But I did ask him once if he drank wine, and he said, well, he quite likes the taste of wine, but often what the effect of wine on him has, and I'm beginning to feel this myself, actually, is that if you meditate a lot, it's a bit like you're a fine, finely tuned instrument. You know, it's like you've got the strings of a violin finely tuned. And if you drink wine, or you do unskillful, sort of, um, not skillful, but... Um, Things that aren't sort of very subtle, um, sort of a bit more crude and gross and so on, you actually become less finely tuned. So, you know, if you, if you develop a, um, a sort of quietly fine-tuned sensitivity to things and you drink alcohol, it's going to dull your sensitivity. That's probably why you want to drink it, actually, because it's sometimes unpleasant being sensitive to so many things. And you may not be feeling very emotionally robust to be sensitive to many things because you haven't developed emotional robustness which is part of one of Sankrash's teachings, is developing emotional robustness. So he, you know, he doesn't encourage people to drink. No. In fact, he, he suggested order members that had an 11th precept, because we have 10. You know, if you're a friend of the Western Buddhists, you have five, and one of those is you mustn't drink excessively. You know, otherwise you shouldn't become drunk. And order members don't have this precept. It's just assumed they wouldn't get, you know, be so stupid to become excessively drunk. But then he decided, discovered that order members were becoming a little bit foolish and did drink. So he thought maybe we ought to have an 11th precept. In other words, don't drink. And it was a little bit along the same sort of lines of the um, environmentalists. You know, the, he thought that so much money and so much harm was done to the world to produce alcohol. That was, that's where he was coming from. That's how, it wasn't like people made a fool of themselves getting drunk. It was more, the damage that was being done to the environment by growing so much um, or, or giving over so much of the world's resources to growing, um, to producing alcohol, which at the end of the day probably caused more pain for people than it did good. I mean, maybe it's arguable about wine. You know, I don't particularly want to argue it, but uh, that's the sort of thing you would say. Well, it's difficult, isn't it? Because you, you have to go along, you have to have views. I mean... Ideally, the true individual, the Buddha, doesn't have views. You know, he just sees things going on around him. So you don't have to have views about how, why they are going on like they are. They just are. But we have to, if you like, it's part of our ego identity having views. You know, we are in relationship to the world, to other people. We know who we are because we have views about things. And, uh, but if we're trying to evolve our consciousness, um, to the extent that our views are fixed, there's going to be no evolution that's possible. Whilst at the same time, if we let go of all our views, and I think it's the point you're making, there won't be a, a sort of consciousness to evolve. You know, we'd be so floppy and uh, so undefined and so unformed that we won't know, we won't have anything to work with. So it's as though we have to first of all accept we've got views, and this is my view, but then think, hey, <coughs> Maybe I've got the wrong view. You know, maybe there is another way of looking at it. Maybe I'm not right in this occasion. And, uh, 
Yeah, you, um, you listen to different people and you might just get more and more confused, of course, and you think, well, in the end, I'm just going to have to go with my views. Now, if it's about local matters and local situations and local ways of operating things, probably your views are as good as... Your views are very good, usually. Um, and, you know, one, one goes with those things in practical matters. But if it's on deeper, deeper areas, which you don't have an awful lot of experience in, and... Um, and even if it seems that someone like Sanger actually is talking about things on a certain level, it's, it's good not to... He always warned us not to... Uh, he, he warned us about the... What was he called it? The um, premature synthesis. So synthesis is a view. is, is coming to uh, an opinion, and a, um, a view about something. It's where you synthesise a lot of information and you now got a view. And he warned us about the premature synthesis. So it's as though you need, first of all, to accept, well, I've got this view, I'm comfortable with that view, but hey, maybe, you know, I could examine it, I could pull it apart and put it back together again, and you have that sense of, um, of freedom to, to do that. And that takes a lot of courage, because it, in a way, it takes the courage of you putting aside your own ego identity for a moment. So it's, it's as though you have to stand naked. You have to stand naked with no view. And so, okay, I don't know. I don't know about this. And you think, wow, well, who am I? You know, I'm the person that has this view. And you can do it in little ways, and you can judge things. And the Buddhist tradition is that one should listen to the testimony of the wise. So you listen to what the Buddha says, you listen to what the great figures on the refuge tree have to say, and you, you sort of think, well, actually, I'm, in all likelihood, I'm wrong. But, you know, I'm going to argue the case. I'm not just going to just accept it because someone said so. And um, certainly Sangrakshas always um, encourage people to think about things, not to accept. So, you know, even if he says something, he doesn't want you to just to take it on board, but to really, really think it through. But at the same time, don't just be obstinate. You know, think, no, I've got this view. I'm going to stand with this view and not be prepared to change it, but to really pull it to pieces, analyse it, take it to pieces and... You know, see where it's based on, what the assumptions of the argument are based on, are the conclusions right to the argument. And you may even find that the assumption you're basing your argument on are very suspect. You didn't know that. And then you begin to re, re-modify your views. So you're probably going to go through life having views, pulling them apart, and then reforming them. But maybe that's all going to be part of an evolutionary process until you feel quite comfortable not having those views. I think it's what, what, one has, what one's giving up in a way is the over-identifying with a group, um, whilst at the same time accepting you have to be part of a group. You can't live in society without being part of a group. But you need to be more and more aware that you are a group member, but stop behaving like a group member. I think that's the... You put it in simple language, really, is that you, you become more aware that you are I am starting to act like a group member. You're taking on the views, the, um, the fashion and things of the group which we all do, but we don't know we're doing it often. You know, we don't know we go and buy a certain sort of coloured trousers or shirt and thinking, well, this is the fashion. Well, we do, 
But we often do it because we want to be accepted. You know, we've probably got some other motivation. That we, want to be, we, we don't want to stand out. We want to be accepted by people. So we buy the uniform that accepts, you know, we feel accepted. And um, some people are what are called individualists. They always stand outside the group and they form a group of their own um, because they're always different. But the important thing is that you accept that you can be part of the group and you can be comfortable in that whilst being aware that you're not falling into too, too deeply. In, you're not losing your individuality in the group. And if necessary, if the group's going to become un, unethical, unskillful, you're prepared to leave it. That's, in a way, the baseline, really. You know, there's probably a lot you can put up with, like clothes and things, but when it becomes ethic, an ethical consideration, you may have to leave certain groups. So, for instance, I've left the group of meat-eaters because it was a you know, great value to me to be a vegetarian. So, you know, I probably joined the vegetarians group. But uh, I don't think of myself as a vegetarian. I just don't like eating meat. But I don't want to... I don't, I don't feel uncomfortable telling people I don't, I'm not going to eat meat, even if they've gone to a lot of trouble to cook it for me. I wouldn't eat it, because I just don't want to. So sometimes you have to be prepared to... And it's very difficult with people. You know, if you go to a family... And one member of the family has you know, spent a lot of time, spent hours cooking you this lovely meal, but it's got lamb in it, and you don't want to eat it. You know? So what do you do? You just eat the potatoes and pretend. And uh, sometimes you just have to make it clear beforehand, if you can, or that you're not falling around, you're not going to eat meat. And that might mean that in that situation you don't eat it, and they get upset. And in the end they respect you for it. But you, know, you may, you know, families you can't really leave, but others' friends, if they keep trying to do that to you, you think, well, I don't want to eat with you, if that's the case. Anyway, should we form a group downstairs and have a cup of tea? <laughs> so thank you very much for a wonderful evening, giving me the opportunity to talk about my favourite subject, and um, hope you read some of his books. Listen to his lectures as well, his voice does something, even if you don't understand the words. It sends you to sleep sometimes.